Well, I wanted to start today by saying that today is a special day for a couple of reasons. Um, first, in case you don't know, today is Amber's 40th birthday. And I'll have a few more words about this uh, milestone uh, as, before we wrap up today. But today is also Mother's Day, as you know, and... Um, I was planning on talking about blessing versus cursing as we continue our message series on trending and putting on the character of Christ. But the message I was writing kind of took on a life of its own. And, and that all sometimes happened to pastors. And, and so I decided to go in another direction. I wanted to talk a little bit about the role of mothers and how we understand love through the lens of God according to Scripture. Now, I have a mom, a wonderful mom, and she lives in Florida, and because of that, I haven't seen my mom on Mother's Day since we moved to Kansas, which has been over four years now. Um, but I plan to call her after the service today and wish her a happy Mother's Day and tell her how much I love her and appreciate her. And if you're a mom, I hope this day is a great day for you. But I'm really aware that this is one of the more complex holidays of the year, and we kind of saw a little bit about that in that video uh, earlier this morning. And there are some people where Mother's Day is just a really simple day. It's full of joy and gratitude. And then there will be other people where you wanted to become a mom, but that has not happened. So this day can feel really heavy. And for some moms, you have a child, but that relationship has turned out to be really painful. There's distance, and that makes it really awkward. Maybe you chose not to be a mom. And this is one of those days where um, our culture or society has made you feel like a second-class person. Maybe you've terminated a pregnancy, and there could be a lot of weight attached to that. Maybe you've lost a mom. Maybe there's loss in your life, so this is a really bittersweet day. Maybe you have a relationship with a child that's really difficult. You've lost a child, and you, don't even know, you didn't even know if you wanted to come to church today. And I just want to say for everybody on this day, this is home. You know, this whole idea is Jesus came to start a new family for everybody. So I'm glad you're here. I have to say that even if you're a young mom and really optimistic about starting a family, being a parent is not a Hallmark card kind of an experience. <laughs> Sociologists have conducted studies to prove this. They discovered becoming a parent does not lead to higher levels of happiness in your life. It, it's meaningful. It can be wonderful. But it's really tough. On average, marital satisfaction actually goes down when you start having children. And a group of researchers asked parents, especially young moms, to rate 19 different common household activities, including caring for children. Child care was not first on the list. It was not second on that list either. It was actually ranked 16th on that list. It was behind exercising, food preparation, talking on the phone, watching TV. It was actually even behind house cleaning. And I know when Aiden was born, I created this perfect idea in my mind of what it was going to be like to care for this little life. He was so tiny. And when we took him home from the hospital, I put him in a car seat that seemed three times too big for him. And I got a picture up here on the screen. And our drive home from the hospital was the most careful I had ever driven a car. 
I mean, you know, by comparison, it seemed like my driver's license exam at age 16 seemed like an evil Knievel event. Before he was born, I pictured rocking him, watching him sleep, feeding him, listening to those little baby noises, seeing him smile, holding his hand as he learned how to walk, and teaching him how to talk. In my mind, he would just say over and over again, Daddy, I love you. Thank you for being my daddy. It didn't happen like that at all. I had no idea how selfish I was until I became a parent. I remember being so desperate for sleep. You know, I'd hear that cry in the middle of the night, and I would lay there and pretend to be asleep until Amber committed to getting out of bed, and then I'd get up and go, oh, oh, you're getting up? Okay, I'll just stay here. <laughs> you know, so that I get, you know, credit for good intentions, but really, I get the sleep that I'd want. <laughs> I was not like Jesus at all. And those early years of parenthood were tough. Midnight diaper changes, lugging the stroller in and out of the car, the smell of baby food, ugh, crying for no reason at all. By the way, I was the one that was crying for no reason at all. And then kids grow up, and they don't tell you this when you start out. It's not just when they're able to walk or when they go off to school or when they turn 18. You never stop being a parent and carrying the burden. While preparing for this message, I googled the phrase, the most disappointed parent in the world. And this actually connects to the scripture passage, which we'll take a look at in just a moment. But my Google search took me to a guy in England who was disappointed in his adult children. He actually wrote them a letter about it. Apparently, it's not an unusual experience to be disappointed with kids because that letter became so popular that it began trending on the internet. And it ended up going viral. So I want to read a little bit of it to you today. I'm not making this up. This is the actual letter. It starts off, Dear all three, It is obvious that none of you has the faintest notion of the bitter disappointment each of you has in your own way dished out to us. We are constantly regaled with chapter and verse of the happy, successful lives of the families of our friends and relatives and being asked of news of our own children and grandchildren. I wonder if you realize how we feel. I can tell you now that I, for one, and I sense mom feels the same, have had enough of being forced to live through the never-ending bad dream of our children's underachievements. I want to hear no more from any of you until, if you feel inclined, you have a success or an achievement or a realistic plan. I am bitterly, bitterly disappointed. Dad. Now, after hearing those words, how many of you feel a little bit better about your family experience? (laughs) Of course, I know with many folks, there will be some people who hear this letter and they'll think, I got a letter like that. Or I've heard words like that. Where do you go with a disappointed heart? We live in a world where hearts get broken all the time. We're always disappointed in relationships. Well, we're here today to find out where to go. The Bible is a story of a parent who has really good reason to be disappointed in their children. I mean, the letter we just read is from a dad who's disappointed for pretty superficial reasons. And he responds in a terribly hurtful way. And the Bible is a story of a God who is a heavenly father. 
And he has profound reasons to be disappointed in his children. Yet he responds in a way that is beyond comprehension. And if you'll let it, can be the foundation for which you can love people in your disappointing world. And these are the words of God in the Bible. This is in a book by the prophet Hosea in chapter 11. But God is trying to talk about his relationship to the human race, to his people. He uses this picture of a parent and the child and the disappointment that surrounds it. And God starts off by saying, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Every parent knows that feeling. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now you might remember that the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt and God led them out. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. And they sacrificed to the Baals. You see, Baals were other gods that people worshipped. So they, sac- they sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Parents will sometimes have little nicknames or uh, terms of endearment for their children. Ephraim is one of those for God's children, for Israel. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them? In other words, will they not experience judgment now? Are they not going to experience the cost of rejecting me because they refuse to repent? And God is saying, well, a sword will flash in their cities. And God is saying their cities will become places of violence because they disobey me. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. This is an extraordinary insight into God's own heart. And he is, or at least should be, the most disappointed parent who ever existed. Hosea wants us to understand this is God's heart toward us. God is saying, when I called my little child Israel, they were just a bunch of ragged slaves, but I love them. This is God's heart toward you. I taught them how to walk. I picked them up and hold them in my arms. I'd cuddle them the way a parent does. I'd bend down to feed them, but they didn't know. How could they not know? How could they not know it was me? Every time you wake in the morning, when there's anybody in your life to love, when your body is working, when you get sleep at night, when you have food to eat, how can you not know this is God? God says, my children don't. And they run after these other gods, maybe called Baal, maybe called success, maybe called ego, or self, or money, or sex, or power. My kid's gone bad. You know, I thought a relationship was going to look so different. I thought they were going to be straight-A students. I thought they were going to play varsity. I thought they were going to get into Harvard. I thought I'd have wonderful bumper stickers talking about my kids. It doesn't look like that at all. God just pours out the disappointment of a heartbroken parent. And by the way, if I'm a parent, why would I think I'm above disappointment when God himself isn't? We read this extraordinary letter and we wonder what he's going to say to his children. 
Is he going to say like the dad who wrote that letter, I want to hear no more from you until you have a plan, until there's some achievement? And God goes on. This is where the passage pivots. God says, but how can I give you up, Ephraim? Every parent's heart knows this. How can I hand you over, Israel? I can't even bear to think such thoughts. This is God talking. My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I'm not going to destroy Ephraim. And why? Because I think my children are going to get way better because they're so well behaved? Nope. Says, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. They will follow the Lord. It's an amazing passage where we see this struggle. Only, it's not between God and some other force. It's not even between God and his children. It's going on inside God. My heart has changed within me. God knows the pain of rejection. The way that usually works in our lives is, you reject me and I'll reject you. He says, this I cannot do because I'm God. Because I'm the Holy One of Israel. And it's interesting, that word holy is so misunderstood in our day. People think of it as a weird word or a churchy word. Or it makes God unavailable or unattainable. That it might keep him from just being a loving God. Actually, in this passage, it says, Holiness is not an obstacle to my love. It's actually the foundation to my love. It's because I am holy. Our culture says, you please me, and then I'll love you. You hurt me, I'll hurt you back. It is precisely the fact that God is holy, that his goodness is unstoppable, that does not allow him to do that. He says, I can't stop loving my children because I promised. Love is not a feeling. Love is not this warm glow when you do things that make me feel good about myself. Love is a promise. And the promise is, I will your good. I will work for your good. I will devote myself to your good, no matter how you treat me. He says, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. So love is a promise. Sometimes that promise might be wonderful to experience. It might be comforting. Sometimes that love will be painful and it will be challenging. But God promised. We promise to love. And yet, none of us can keep that promise on our own. There's this wonder and pain around it. While searching for Mother's Day ideas, I stumbled across a little book about the promise of love between a mom and her child. It's called Love You Forever. Perhaps you know it. You might have even read this to your children when they were young. But I'll warn you, it might sound a little sentimental and cheesy, but there's a story behind it, so bear with me. The story begins, A mother held her new baby and very slowly rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. While she held him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. The baby grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. 
He grew until he was two years old, and he ran all around the house. He pulled all the books off the shelves. He pulled all the food out of the refrigerator, and he took his mother's watch and flushed it down the toilet. Sometimes his mother would say, this kid is driving me crazy. But at nighttime, when that two-year-old was quiet, she opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, looked up over the side of his bed, and if he was really asleep, she picked him up and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. While she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. That little boy grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was nine years old. And he never wanted to come in for dinner. He never wanted to take a bath. And when grandma visited, he always said bad words. Sometimes his mother wanted to sell him to the zoo. But at nighttime, when he was asleep, the mother quietly opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, looked up over the side of his bed. If he was really asleep, she picked up that nine-year-old boy and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. The boy grew some more. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was a teenager. He had strange friends and he wore strange clothes and he listened to strange music. Sometimes his mother felt like she was in the zoo. But at nighttime, when the teenager was asleep, the mother opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, and looked up over the side of his bed. If he was really asleep, she picked up that great big boy and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. While she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. And that teenager grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was a grown-up man. He left home and got a house across town. But sometimes on dark nights, the mother got into her car and drove across town. If all the lights in her son's house were out, she opened his bedroom window, crawled across the floor, and looked up over the side of his bed. If that great big man was really asleep, she picked him up and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. At this point, mom's getting a little carried away here. You know, the story starts to get a little creepy. <laughs> and while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. Parents are that way, you know. Well, that mother, she got older. She got older and older and older. One day she called up her son and said, you better come see me because I'm very old and sick. So her son came to see her. When he came to the door, she tried to sing the song. She sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. But she couldn't finish because she was too old and sick. The son went to his mother. He picked her up and rocked her back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he sang the song. I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my mommy you'll be. When the son came home that night, he stood for a long time at the top of the stairs. 
Then he went into the room where his very new baby daughter was sleeping. He picked her up in his arms and very slowly rocked her back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while he rocked her, he sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. And the song goes on. Generations come, generations go. People are born, people die. And the song goes on. And I know it sounds a little sentimental, I know. But there's a story behind the story. The guy who wrote it is a best-selling children's author named Robert Munch. And his life is not a Hallmark card kind of life. When he was a young boy, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. He writes about how when he was in the fifth grade, he can remember thinking that he didn't want to live anymore. Then he was diagnosed with obsessive-compulsive disorder. And some of you know the agony of that. And then partly to medicate himself, he ended up becoming an alcoholic. So he joined AA. When he was a young man, he studied for seven years to be a Jesuit priest. But he found himself, given all that he had experienced, to be full of doubts and darkness. And he ended up not doing that. He got married, and his wife got pregnant. She gave birth to a little boy, but that little baby was stillborn. And she got pregnant again. And she gave birth to another little baby. And that baby was stillborn. Then she didn't get pregnant anymore. And he never got to see or hold those little babies. Never got to be a dad. But out of that experience, this little song came into his head. I'll love you forever. That's where the song came from. For those two little children he would never get to raise. And then a thought came to him. He thought, I could write a story better than life. And the story, love, would be stronger than death. And it's a funny thing. When you're a parent, you get this idea that if you just love your kids enough, if you just tell them enough, that you could just somehow fill their little tanks up. And they'd never be anxious, they'd never be afraid, and they would grow up strong and confident and successful and make great choices and lead great lives and raise great families. And then you can't. You come to the top of the stairs, and there's some kind of stupid conflict, and there's estrangement, and there's loss, and there's betrayal, and there's disappointment. What do you do when you stand at the top of the stairs and your love is not enough anymore? And you know you failed. And I want to tell you all today, it's why we're here. This is a place where disappointed, broken-hearted people come to the disappointed, broken-hearted God who says, I know, I know, I'll love you forever. So for the rest of this morning, I just want to give you three thoughts about how you can bring a disappointed heart to God. We're just broken people just trying to love each other. We need another kind of love. We can't do it ourselves. 
So just three thoughts today. First thought, talk to God about your broken heart, about your disappointed heart. Talk to God about your disappointed heart. What's in our heart has a way of leaking out. And when we try to hide it, it just ends up becoming a mess. Not long ago, I used to have this really bad habit where I couldn't hide my emotions. And that's kind of a pun because I still have that problem. But even if I didn't say a single word, my face would tell others how I was feeling. When I was mad and when others didn't meet my expectations, when I was disappointed in other people, my lips would do this thing where I'd purse them and my eyebrows would wrinkle. And I told people I was just thinking. But if I'm being honest, I was pretty upset about something. And my daughter Mia wasn't afraid to call me out on it. She said, Daddy, you have your angry face. You know, it's really hard to manage your eyebrows. Sometimes people think about the church as a place where we go where we're supposed to manage our outsides. This is a place where strong, healthy, put-together people with strong, healthy, put-together families go. There's not supposed to be any depression here or any alcohol problems here, any conflict problems here, any estrangement here. No. This is a place where everybody can belong, no matter how messy your life is. This is a place for people to just say, apart from God, my life's a total mess. Apart from God, my way doesn't work so well. I know that. And I'm just one bad choice away from having a total train wreck. This is a place where we come and we bring our disappointed hearts. If you find yourself disappointed today, Bring that to God. Grieve it. Talk to God about it. Cry over it. And then dry your tears. Embrace this life, this day, these people, because this is the only life you're ever going to get. And these are the only people that you're ever going to be able to love. So bring your disappointment to God. Second thought. Don't base the well-being of your heart on the outcome of someone else's life. Not even someone you love. Not even your child. And I've had some experience with this recently with someone in my own family. Don't panic. It's not Amber or the kids. However, it does involve someone that I love very much. But I want to spend a little time on this idea because it's so important. I found this saying not long ago, and I've been thinking about it for the past couple weeks, about the way a mother's heart works. It goes, a mother can be no happier than her least happy child. Now that sounds tender, but I want to say that is the stupidest saying I've ever heard in my life. In the history of great, stupid human sayings, that has to rank near the top of the list. God doesn't order our world that way. God doesn't say, well, as long as there's one human being that's making stupid choices, doing bad things, living in misery, I'll just get down and be miserable along with them. God doesn't say that. And thank God he doesn't. Who wants to live in a world with a miserable God? Over the years, while working with teenagers and their parents, I had a lot of conversations. And there are parents who are really struggling. They say things like, I'm at the end of my rope. I'm at my wit's end. I don't know what to do. 
And they have this tendency to compare themselves to other parents. Parents who appear wiser. Parents who seem to have it all together because their kids are perfect. These parents would pray and say things like, God, I don't even know why you gave me this child. You probably should have given her to so-and-so because she would have been a better mom. She would know what to do. Then God said, but I didn't want that other lady to be her mom. I chose you to be her mom. I gave you what this little child needs. You are this child's mom because I want you to be this child's mom. You are who you are. And you're where you are. Because God made you. God chose you. And God loves you. God will work in you. God will use you. Your well-being and your connection to God in your life does not rest on the outcome of your child's life. People have a really hard time with this. I was listening to a ministry leader talk about this odd paradigm shift that's taken place with raising kids. He said, we have taken the word parent, which is a wonderful word, a wonderful noun, and we've turned it into a verb. We talk about parenting. How well am I parenting? How well are you parenting? Are you parenting well enough? Are you parenting poorly? We put this huge outcome on our kids. Parent is a good noun, but it's a bad verb. God never does that. God never looks at our own existence based on how his children are turning out. God doesn't say, well, my kids are doing poorly, so I must not have guided them well enough. I should have guided my kids better. Maybe I was too lenient. Maybe I was too strict. Maybe they would have done better with another God like Baal or Zeus or Moloch or June Cleaver or Justin Bieber or somebody like that. God doesn't do that. And thank God he doesn't. Now when it comes to my children, I can love them. Will I mess them up? Absolutely. I will mess them up because I make mistakes. And I fall short. Is there some kind of formula where if I just do the right thing or say the right thing all the time that it will guarantee that my kids are going to grow up wise, strong, confident, and lead great lives? No. There's no formula. There's wisdom. And there are mistakes. But there's no formula. There's no guarantee. If I have a child that's miserable, will it help if I get miserable with them? No. This is so misunderstood. Now I wanted to put this in a sentence we could all remember. So here it is. Love does not mean putting my personal well-being in the hands of my least emotionally healthy relative. Love does not mean putting my personal well-being in the hands of my least emotionally healthy relative. Now I don't want to be insensitive. You know, compassion is a good thing. But I'll tell you a little secret. Generally speaking, you'll be a much better mom, dad, brother, sister, friend, coworker if you're basically happy in your life with God. If you live in the joy of the Lord. Just crawling into a miserable space because somebody you love is in a miserable space will not be a gift. Not even to them. There's a really interesting statement in the Bible Many of you are familiar with King David, and if you're familiar with him, then you know that you know, his family life was a bit of a train wreck. You know, he was not a very good husband, he wasn't a very good dad. 
But one time when he was at his lowest and everybody had deserted him, he had nowhere to turn. And then there's this great statement. It says, but David encouraged himself in the Lord. It's so painful to know I'm a sinner. I'm selfish. I'm inadequate. My ego gets in the way. And it hurts my kids. I don't think there's any area where I'm more aware of my need for grace than being a parent. And then I go to God. And I remember that God loves me. Because he is holy. And he forgives me. He is with me. And he will help me. Live in that. Don't live in the misery, in the misery of anybody whose life is hard. Live in God so that you have more to give. Third point, last point. Don't let disappointment somewhere blind you to the good elsewhere. Everyone you know has some area of their life that is going to disappoint you. The danger is, I can start looking at you, and all I see is the parts of you that disappoint me. And I think that's all there is to you. And this can happen in your family. It can also happen at your work or in your neighborhood. I just see you as the one who's inflicting pain on me. All I can see is, here's where you disagree with me, and I think you're wrong. Here's where you're messing up. Here's the stuff I don't like about you. Here are your character defects. Here's where I think you're failing. Once I start communicating to you that you are a disappointment to me, our relationship starts dying. Nothing else can make up for that. You can eat the finest foods, and you can live in the biggest house. But if you live there in isolation and coldness, and bitterness. And some of you are. It's just a nicely decorated tomb. Part of what love does is it seeks and asks God's help. I talked about this a couple weeks ago when I spoke about judging. We need to ask for God's help. And just say, God, help me look at this person and see what you see. And see beyond what just disappoints me. The Apostle Paul put it so wonderfully, just a really simple phrase. He said, love always looks for the best. It doesn't mean live in denial. It just means, God, help me to see in this person what you see. And gang, this is so easy to do. Just look for the things that you love or like about a person. Maybe that means telling somebody, you know, you're so organized. That's awesome. Or you make our yard look so good. Maybe it's something more. Maybe you tell someone, I love your smile. I love your sense of humor. You know, I love the way you make me laugh. Whatever good qualities you see in somebody, point them out. And you can do this. You can look for the best. And if you don't feel like you can't, if you feel like you just don't have any love inside to give, if you're at the top of the stairs, then go to God. And you can do this right now. Because he knows what it is to be a disappointed parent, rejected by his children. But then this song came to him. I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. I'm the Holy One. I'll write a story where love is stronger than death. He did. It's called the Gospel. And we read it at the cross.
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we bring our hearts to you this day and all that fills them. Joy and gladness, gratitude and disappointment, with guilt and loneliness, with resentment. And now, God, we consider this remarkable word, Mom, and we reflect on it together with you. Our prayer today is that you comfort those who are missing their mom. And those moms who are missing a child that is no longer with them. Would you bring healing to the brokenhearted? Thank you, God, for love. Thank you, God, that you love us. And that you've expressed this love to us. And you still do. Through your son, Jesus. Who will come into our hearts and love us forever. We pray all these things in your glorious and holy name. Amen.